This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Now, Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio. Good afternoon and welcome. It's Monday, time for our Zoomer Squad. And by this time tomorrow, many COVID restrictions will be a thing of the past. No more capacity limits in theaters and stadiums or any other indoor setting, and you won't have to show a vaccine passport to get in. The one thing that remains in force masking. And many people are welcoming this turn, but for others, particularly vulnerable older people, it is causing anxiety. According to our outlet, Blog TO, at least one Toronto restaurant is maintaining the vaccine passport in response to customer and employee demand. What do you think? Would you like to see it continued? Would you be more comfortable if you knew that everyone around you is vaccinated. I'm also wondering if watching events unfold in Ukraine is triggering memories of the Cold War or even World War II for some people in our demographic. Numbers to call 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. And uh, as I said, Today is the day for our Zoomer squad. So now I am joined by David Kravitz, Vice President of Zoomer Media and Chief Membership Officer at CARP, Peter Mugridge, Senior Editor of Zoomer Magazine, and Bill Van Gorder, Chief Operating Officer and Chief Policy Officer at CARP. Uh, hi, guys. How are you? Hi, Libby. Hi, everyone. Hi, Libby. Great. And you? Uh, good. I'm glad to hear that. Now, uh, Let's start, since everybody uh, is thinking about what's happening in Ukraine, with that question. You know, I think it's different looking at it for people who remember the Iron Curtain in Europe, who remember the Cold War, and some people who even remember the Second World War, which was terrible in in Russia and Ukraine uh, and elsewhere, of course. Um, What do you think of that? David, I think it's true that a lot of people remember. I'm I, I'm struck, particularly in my case. Uh, you talk about the Cold War, uh, and I have seen a few articles on this of the Hungarian Revolution in 1956 and the Czechoslovakian Spring of 1968, when um, the uh, USSR moved tanks, brutally suppressed popular uh, uprisings, executed the leaders. In the case of Hungary. And we had a treaty uh, uh, at that time that gave them that freedom of operation behind the so-called Iron Curtain, that we were not going to go to war with them. And the United States, in particular, Eisenhower is going to stand off and condemn it and do what he could, but basically let them let them do what they wanted within that uh, area. And you contrast that to the the universal condemnation and action. I mean, they they're they're the destructiveness of the the Russian economy. How quickly we've mobilized. The West has mobilized suddenly to, uh, you know, the ruble is collapsing. The stock market's closed. They're going to be shut out like within days. This thing, and I, you know, I don't think that they ever calculated. And it is a big contrast from the Cold War. Well, uh, you know, some of us remember, um, you know, in the Cold War where little kids were told uh, how to put your head between your knees in the event of a nuclear attack. Remember those? I mean, you know, yesterday uh, Putin put his nuclear defenses on high alert, which is very scary, Bill. It's very, very scary, and especially for those of us who know people who are from there, are there. I had the opportunity uh, through my work in the early 70s to be in the Soviet Union uh, a couple of times and visited uh, Kiev and uh, Poltava, other uh, uh, 
towns and cities and also other areas of the Soviet Union. And my one huge memory from then was how fiercely independent the Ukrainians were. Uh, they were mostly farmers uh, outside of the cities, and all of them uh, were uh, were forced to uh, combine their goods from their farm and sell them together. But every one of them had a small plot behind their own home or house where they grew their own vegetables. They went to an informal market and shared them, and their independence was just so clear at that time, even though they were uh, supposedly a part of the Soviet Union, that I can just imagine how this is affecting them now and the memories back to those days. Peter, you're the youngin' in this group. <laughs> yeah, um, but, um, you know, I, I have family experience. My my uh, grandfather covered the um, famine in the Ukraine in the 30s, the, the Russian enforced famine in the Ukraine, which killed millions and millions of uh, Ukrainians. And, the and, Holodomor. Uh, yeah. yeah, and 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 a lot of them came to Canada as a result. But uh, um, so it, it's sort of that kind of feeling. I, I, I imagine the older Ukrainians here remember it well. When uh, you know, um, you know, it, it was under a different madman back then, Joseph Stalin. But um, like it, it's history repeating itself again, and uh, just the unpredictability of the where where Russia is going to go what Russia is going to do next and, and whether, you know, how, how we stay out of an armed conflict here, the world. Yeah, that is, yeah. A, um, yeah, I was just thinking that it, that is probably just watching these events unfold, terrible as they are, uh, must be different for people for whom it triggers certain historic memories. But let's get to what is going on here and, as of tomorrow, a whole pile of restrictions are going to be lifted. And are people ready for that, David? Well, I think actually the majority are, uh, including, I would say, uh, older people who might have some concerns but are also uh, ready for it. I think what's really happened is we've moved, and we, we've talked about this in the previous weeks, we've anticipated this, We've moved to a world in which it's really going to be up to the individual to um, watch out for oneself and where you go and whether you're comfortable going or not. And um, that's the new world we're in. We're not going to be able to rely very much on um, state-imposed regulations to uh, to protect us. And I think uh, personal vigilance and personal comfort zones are going to rule the day. Bill, do you agree? And what do you think uh, about um, some, well, we we know about at least one restaurant where they said, hey, people are at close quarters here. We're keeping a vaccine passport. And I would think, you know, I see, from the before times, a lot of restaurants I went to, uh, the clientele was all older. They weren't clubby places. Yeah, well, I, I agree with uh, David that uh, most people are uh, prepared to be ready uh, for it, but they're going to be they're going to be cautious. Uh, they're going to go to restaurants where they trust uh, the ownership of the people running it, and and know that uh, things will be kept uh, clean and neat. And and uh, uh, they also know that uh, you know the vast majority of people are vaccinated two or three times, uh, but there are still those easy things that people will continue to do. Uh, I would hope. Uh, wearing masks, I think, will become much more uh, the standard. People won't be quick to get rid of their masks. And, and uh, some distancing in, uh, in crowded spaces, uh, washing our, our hands. Uh, uh, older Canadians uh, are, are sure to make, are, are going to be sure that they want to avoid uh, this, uh, the pandemic because the pandemic isn't over. I think that's, you know, and calling it an endemic doesn't reduce the potential impact. And uh, we're now going into an entirely different phase, no mandates, no regulations. So as David said, it's time that we uh, began to take our own health into our own hands and making sure we're taking the care we need both for ourselves and for the loved ones that we come in contact with. Uh, Peter, Bill just mentioned, you know, going to places where you trust. But if there's no vaccine passport, how do you know? I mean, how how do you police that? Well, the 
like where the the rest, I'm, I'm intrigued about what the restaurants are going to do. The ones that are going to continue to enforce the passport are they going to put a sign up on their their, their uh, window? Or are they going to you know post it on their website or, or Instagram site? Like how how are people going to know which which restaurants are enforcing the the um, vaccine mandate and which aren't? And uh, I I think it's going to create a lot of confusion. Um, and I also think that people who are worried um, are just start, going to stop going out. And uh, I've seen some surveys, upwards of 20%, 25% of people are just not going to go out, eat out again until this thing is completely over. And even if there's a, you know, um, even if a restaurant is enforcing a vaccine passport, um, I think people are going to give it a miss. They, they just don't want to be in public. And no matter what, um, they, you know, no matter what sort of regulations the restaurant has, they, they're they're unwilling to go out, and and that's going to persist, I think, for you know uh, until this thing is completely over. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's it's not going to be, uh, a, I think, a, a one shot deal. I think it's kind of going to be a gradual sort of a process as people get used to whatever the new reality is, David. I think that's I think that's exactly true. But I also and I also think what's happening is that uh, we, we must never underestimate the power for good or ill of the omnipresence of news of the internet. We're hearing of all these different jurisdictions and all these different countries and different states south of the border. And what's happening is that um, the scientific rationale. Uh, has dissolved into, you know, politics. You know, politicians have understood that the people are fed up with this. And, of course, each time they do something, they ban the masks here, they impose the masks there, they get rid of the passports, they maintain the passports. There's always some science advisor to whatever branch of government it is who says that this is the science and this is uh, the way it's got to be. Um, but over the past two years, we've seen that erode into multiple declarations of the current scientific wisdom. And I think that just creates more confusion. It's not as absolute as it was two years ago during the early stages and waiting for that first vaccine to be developed. Now it's uh, very fragmented, different policies, different programs, and also different outcomes, uh, the areas that have no mask mandates don't seem to be doing worse than areas with mask mandates. And uh, so I think it's it, people are confused, and I think you've, you've got it exactly right. It'll be gradual. It'll be a, a number of individual decisions. I'm comfortable going out. I'm not comfortable going out. And uh, it'll be a long road till we go back to where everybody's relaxed about everything. And, and David, well, I, personally, what about you? Are you comfortable? Yes, I overall I am, but... Um, I think it, I think even then, I mean, am I sitting in a restaurant where the next table is several feet over or am I wedged into a bar with, uh, uh, well, I didn't really go to crowded bar, noisy bars where everybody was packed in like sardines. I didn't really do that before this, but I certainly would be less likely to be in that situation. I also think that, that uh, this is just me. I think that there'll be a selection of a few trusted resources. So like, here's a group of restaurants. I know I'm kind of a regular. I'm comfortable with the seating uh, and with the distance, and I'm not necessarily going to explore new stuff. And I agree with, with Peter on that. People are going to just not go out as much. But I just think you're looking at hundreds of thousands and eventually millions of individual decisions rather than you know, the chief public health officer decreeing this is the way it is and everybody has to fall in line. Those those days are gone. That certainty is gone. Uh, Bill, so where are you going tomorrow? Well, well uh, uh, tomorrow, yes, and, and uh, uh, as, as, you, as you know, I'm in uh, uh, Nova Scotia now where all of the uh, uh, rules, regulations are going to be uh, uh, taken away in the next week, so the same as our friends in Ontario. And, uh, you know, but there's still uncertainty around how quickly this uh, virus is going to go away or come back again. Uh, and as David said, uh, uh, there's a lot of uncertainty. So uh, if there are easy ways of going forward, if I can uh, keep wearing my mask, if I could only go to the restaurants where I know or I feel at least that the other people 
who are there have the same concern about everybody's health as uh, I do, then uh, I'm going to take it easy for the next three to six months and try to understand more about what this virus is going to do before I'm going to go to uh, any major sporting events, sit with 20,000 people uh, all unmasked around me. Okay, uh, Peter, last 15 seconds to you. Are you going anywhere you haven't been for a while? I'm going to go to baseball games. It's outside. It's, uh, you know, you can distance and... Um the roof is open, usually. Well, maybe not in spring, but when the roof is open, absolutely, I'll be going to baseball games. Okay. Hopefully, yeah. you'll have one to go so- to. <laughs> Sounds good. Sounds good. Thanks so much, David Kravitz, Bill Van Gorder, and Peter Mugridge. Thanks, Thank Libby. Libby. We're going to take a break, and when we come back, we are going to turn to the situation in Ukraine. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Schneimer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. Relief organizations are scrambling to get humanitarian aid to Ukraine and to the thousands fleeing Ukraine. One Free World International is one such organization. Its founder, Reverend Majid El Shafi, is well known for his work in the Middle East, and One Free World International conducted several missions in Ukraine after Russia annexed Crimea. Reverend El Shafi joins me now. Hi, Majid. How are you? Hi, Libby. It's a pleasure to be with you today. Okay, great. So uh, what are you hoping to do in Ukraine? Our focus is the humanitarian aid and the situation on the ground. Today, according to the UN, the refugee numbers reached the half mil, and we are only day number five in the conflict. So you can imagine that by the end of this month, if the situation continues, the number of the refugees on the borders, especially in Moldova and Poland and, uh, and Hungary, that will be uh, extremely uh, big crisis in Europe. Uh-huh. And uh, do you have people on the ground there? We have two teams on the ground, one near uh, Poland border and one near Moldovan border. And uh, basically on which we side? have also Sorry? teams in within Uc- Poland in... and Moldova. So in Poland uh, and Moldova. They are helping with the refugees right now, yes. Sorry, so they're in Poland and Moldova, not in Ukraine. They're both. I have team in Ukraine and I have team in Moldova and Poland, both. Both and, sides. And how many people would that be? In total, would be around 23, 24 people. Uh-huh. And uh, what, again, what work are you, are they hoping to undertake? Now, when we are seeing the refugees, when you have a big gathering of refugees, especially in the, this cold weather, the first thing that the focus is clean water, is, uh, is food, uh, something to sustain them from the cold. So that's heater, blankets, but also medication, field hostels, uh, also to treat some of the wounded soldiers that reaching the border, but also toys for the kids to help them with the trauma. So the main focus is the humanitarian aid. Mm-hmm. And uh, are you partnering with any of the other groups that are trying to do the same thing? Uh, no, we are cooperating. We, we have a big cooperation with different people on the ground and different churches, uh, different religious institutions. Uh, the head of the teams, uh, our team on the ground is from the Jewish community. So it's basically different communities coming together, and we are trying to do the best of what we can. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there, there are uh, quite a number, quite a wide range of, of communities that are uh, trying to do this work. Um, I would imagine that logistically it's, it's getting more difficult. Logistically, it's coming more difficult when you, when you are talking about inside Ukraine itself. But on the borders, definitely the need is important. What we do, that we buy all of these materials locally from Moldova or Poland, and that saves us a great effort with the transportation and transformation, all of this product from Canada to Europe. So the best plan here is to buy this product locally and to distribute it on the border right away. Yeah, that's right. My understanding is that the Western borders are still uh, completely open. It's still completely open. There were some challenges on the Poland border because the, it was the most busy border and there is a lot of pressure on there. Uh, but they're still open. They're still operating. Moldova is still open. And a matter of fact, we were very surprised how much 
they uh, was they they opened uh, their doors and accept the refugees from Ukraine with an open arms. It was really very surprising. In Moldova, in Poland, not so surprising. I mean, as you know, for hundreds of years, the the borders of Ukraine and Poland, Poland, Ukraine, there are already two million Ukrainians in Poland. So it's, it's a situation where a lot of people are basically collecting their relatives. Absolutely. And, and Poland itself had some difficulties with the movement of the refugees in the past. But in this case, also their history, and they know the communist regime, they know, they also, Poland, have suffered a lot. So I think there is also, is very close to home to the Polish people. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the actually disturbing things that I heard, uh, I, and uh, I'm not sure if it was Poland or Moldova, that, that in those countries, uh, they've said, Ukrainians can come in, they don't need to make applications, they can just come in, but uh, international students from elsewhere were not being allowed in. That's happened in, in both Moldova and Poland. Uh, Africans, uh, Asians from Pakistan, Bangladesh, was not allowed to come in. Uh, it's, it, 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 it's, it's very sad, it's, it's discrimination, definitely. There is no way around it, or no way to put it um, but definitely they are uh, trying to accept only Ukrainians and uh, nobody else. Uh-huh. And uh, is there anything that you are trying to do about that? We will address that once we get to Poland, because we are preparing meetings as well with some of the MP, MPs from Poland side and from Moldovan side. Uh, so we are dealing with the government as well there and in order to facilitate uh, the support and the aid upon, the, upon our arrival. So we will definitely raise this with the officials once we land there. Mm-hmm. And uh, do you have those meetings set? Uh, we are in, in the process of preparing them. I think this will be finalized this week. And I should be in Ukraine between March 7 and March 9. Mm-hmm. And how do you plan on getting there? Uh, once you land in Moldova, you just cross the border by land. Four hours later, you can be in Kiev. So if Kiev is still standing by the time that we, we get there, we'll definitely will be visiting Kiev. Mm-hmm. Um, anything else you'd like to leave us with? I think for the people that are listening to us right now, this is the biggest challenge that's facing Europe since the Second World War, and we all know that. Uh, the tyranny that we see right now, the dictatorship, the attack on Ukraine, is attacking all Europe and all democracy around us. If we remain silent on this crime, we never know what will happen tomorrow. So it's better that we all stand up now and defend Ukraine, better than tomorrow we end defending Canada. So I think this will be important. Okay. Reverend Majida Shafi, thank you very much. Thank you for having me. And good luck. Thank you. Bye-bye. Okay, uh, we are going to break. After the break, we'll be talking with uh, some organizations from within the Ukrainian community. Now, uh, there are all kinds of organizations with all kinds of mandates. Uh, so uh, not all of them are registered charities. So when you donate, you should check. Because if you donate through a nonprofit that is not a registered charity, you will not be getting a tax receipt. And of course, we had also heard that the government uh, singled out one organization, the Red Cross, to match the funds. We'll be getting into all of that when we come back. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Schneimer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. Well, I know that there are a lot of listeners with a lot of questions on how and where to donate to help Ukrainians and uh, what is happening in the Ukraine. Let me give the numbers out again before we get to the meat of it. 416-360-0740, toll-free 866 740 And as I said, there are a variety of organizations from various communities who are fundraising and gearing up to provide aid. Everything from medicine and medical supplies to protective gear and food and access to shelter. The federal government has pledged to match donations to the Red Cross up to $10 million here in Ontario. Liberal leader Stephen Del Duca is calling on Queen's Park to do something similar. 
And as I mentioned, not all relief efforts are coming from registered charities. I'm told there are even private efforts, people actually going over there with cash for their relatives, especially since there are limits on the amounts that people who are in the region can withdraw. And there is also a demand to bring in and fast-track Ukrainian refugees, and that demand came from no less than the Premier of the province. The numbers to call, again, 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. And now I want to go to two organizations active inside the Ukrainian community. We have Oris Klarenko, president of the Canada-Ukraine Foundation and Ihor Kozak, Vice President of the League of Ukrainian Canadians and co-founder of the Friends of Ukraine Defense Forces Fund, as well as Betsy Kane, who is a certified specialist at Capel Kane Immigration Lawyers and a member of the steering committee for the Canadian Immigration Lawyers Association. Thank you all for being with us. Hello. Good afternoon, Libby. Thank you for for having us on the show. Okay, well, let us begin with Orist. Um, uh, your foundation, I think, is well along in fundraising. The last time I looked, it was well over $2 million. Yeah, th- again, thanks, Libby, and, and uh, good afternoon uh, to, to my, uh, my co-guests here. Um, the Canada-Ukraine Foundation, uh, in partnership with the Ukrainian-Canadian Congress, um, for over uh, 27 years, 28 years now, has been helping coordinate and deliver humanitarian programming from Canada to Ukraine. And um, while none of us uh, were, well, we were hoping that we wouldn't have to activate uh, on this appeal. We've been preparing for um, uh, this, um, this this tragedy that's happening in our homeland for, uh, for a couple of months and getting this appeal together. And uh, we're uh, basically partnering with uh, existing NGOs on the ground in Ukraine who have uh, warehouses and supply chains to, to, to prepare food and medicine packages uh, for the, the internally displaced um, families in Ukraine. Um, our initial target um, to prepare for what we hoped we wouldn't have to activate was uh, a million and a half Canadian dollars. We, we've since, since Russia started bombing um, five days ago, um, that target has been obviously surpassed and, and, and we've raised the target to five million. And what we've heard from the, the World Health Organization's health cluster is the number of displaced people has grown from 3 million to 18 million. And so we're, we're expecting that um, we're going to need to multiply that several fold over the coming days and weeks. But we've seen broad support from all corners of, uh, of Canada, all sectors. And um, I'm overwhelmed by the outpouring of support, both moral support, but uh, financial support from companies, provincial governments, individual donors, family foundations. We're, we're just overwhelmed and we need to keep um, keep up the momentum on this because, like I said, the need is growing. And uh, unfortunately, whenever this ends, the humanitarian uh, catastrophe on the ground will be uh, significant and we're going to need to help these people however we can. Uh, so uh, here's my question. How many people do you have on the ground? Um, I'm imagining that it's probably getting increasingly difficult to get those things to the people who need it. How are you fixed for that? And again, how many people do you have there? So that's a great question. So the Canada-Ukraine Foundation, up until um, eight months ago, was a, a 100% volunteer organization run by a volunteer board here in Canada. And the, and the entire board, which is made up of 26 uh, people um, from within the Ukrainian community and friends of the Ukrainian community, including some former amba- Canadian ambassadors to Ukraine who sit on our board, uh, we brought on our first paid staffer only this past June. And so uh, when, I, when I joined a couple of years ago, one of the mandates was to capacity build and, and build out the office. And, and never in my wildest dreams did I think we'd be dealing with a crisis uh, that we're dealing with today. So to that effect, what we've done to make sure that we're able to deliver what needs to be delivered is the Canada-Ukraine Foundation is partnering with existing NGOs that are based in Western and Central Europe who have 
warehouses and supply chains on the ground in Ukraine already. Like and they've look, been names. They've Do been, you have sorry names? Uh, we're gonna. I want to keep those at the moment uh, close to our vest because we want to. We, we've just sent our first tranche of money, and we want to a protect those those uh, those organizations. And B, we're we're looking at this one week at a time. Uh, and we want to make sure that that these organizations are able to deliver on what they have promised. And once we see the proof of that, then we'll be reporting back to our donors and to the community that who who we have worked with and that they've been able to successfully deliver it. But th- these are NGOs that have been on the ground this, in, in the first instance for 16 years working in Ukraine to deliver food and medicine parcels. Ihor Kozak, so uh, that's uh, the challenge on the delivery of uh, material. How do you get money there? So you're asking me specifically that yeah. question. Can I just uh, say a few words about our organization uh, because it's slightly different from the Canada-Ukraine Foundation? Um, sure. Uh, we are friends of Ukraine Defense Forces Fund, and we are specifically uh, focusing uh, on uh, providing support to uh, Ukrainian military, non-lethal military aid, uh, also to the veterans, rehabilitation family, to those who uh, died on the battlefields. And uh, we have been doing this work since uh, 2014, uh, and therefore we do have uh, a network of people who've been delivering that assistance and distributing this and accounting for it since uh, 2014. Uh, obviously, since uh, this uh, massive, uh, you know, uh, attacks uh, happen on the Ukrainian cities. And by the way, I'm as a Canadian a retired military officer who've been to various hotspots around the world. I still can't believe that is happening. And the size of this attack is just, uh, it's unimaginable. It's surreal. It's something that we can, you know, seen the last time, I guess, during the Second World War. So the challenge uh, is great. And uh, we are adjusting. We are working primarily now through Poland. And we have a corridor into Ukraine and working with the government in Ukraine, but mainly with our volunteer organizations, which which established a relationship over the past uh, over the past eight year of this war. Um, okay, Betsy Kane, uh, there's a lot of talk about fast tracking and bringing in Ukrainian re- refugees. I mean, you know, just last week uh, we did a segment here on this show about the current backlog, which is uh, seems like a mess. Well, the refugee issue is very different than the backlog issue. The backlog is with regard to people who have pending applications, either for permanent residence, citizenship, temporary residence, um, or any other kind of travel document or permanent resident card. Um, so uh, there are differences. Now, uh, the government of Canada has not yet made any formal announcements about uh, bringing in Ukrainians as refugees. What they have in the very early days is offered to prioritize processing for people already in the queue or people who have temporary residence or other applications in the pipeline already. And they have also set up uh, a telephone number and other internet-based access. And what the lawyers have already been able to determine is that IRCC has been acting, particularly to prioritize uh, spouses and children of Ukrainian, Canadians, and permanent residents, um, and basically some temporary residence applications. But it's a very early days, and these are just interim such initial measures that the government has rapidly rolled out, which is a credit to them. And we expect um, that the government of Canada will make further announcements in the weeks to come on how they will assist Ukrainians in terms of getting out to Canada, getting out of the Ukraine and through to Canada in some way, shape or form, either through the traditional um, avenues or whether um, Canada will open up some type of humanitarian class or help uh, to evacuate uh, or and assist Ukrainians um, in the neighboring com- countries because we have closed all um consular services in Ukraine at the moment, unfortunately. Um, Orest, uh, in, uh, we were, you were just talking about uh, partnering with organizations and making sure that they are able to deliver on what they promised in terms of the, the food and the aid. So that my next question was how it, it seems like getting money to that there is, is a, is a problem as well. So how are you managing that? 
Yeah, and I think that we, one of the things is that, you know, the Canada-Ukraine Foundation has, again, over these 28 years, um, partnered with uh, either delivering the programming, as in uh, the case of the uh, of the um, eight or nine medical missions, the surgical medical missions that, that uh, have gone to, to Ukraine, partnering with, uh, with Sunnybrook Health Sciences Centre here in Toronto, um, and, and uh, ha- have those existing ways of wiring the funds to Ukraine as necessary. The, um, uh, the, the NGOs being based in Western and Central Europe offer alternatives should that uh, become a problem um, in terms of getting the money to where it needs to go. Uh, but um, to, to date, we've been able to uh, to, to process the money as uh, as necessary again. Although the campaign launched quietly within our community um, at the end of January, beginning of February, it has really popped over these last five days. And uh, we've been doing needs assessments, but we did not know exactly what would need to go where. And that's why our first tranche of money was just sent yesterday. And so they're delivering that first, uh, the first um, provisions of aid in the early part of this week to the places it needs to go. Well, I mean, that's that sounds very sensible to me because we've all heard stories. People donate, uh, you know, with the best of intentions, and then you find out that maybe it didn't get where you were yeah, hoping. And, and that's why, and that's why we're doing it one week at a time. And and so I, I mean, I have the. Uh, the benefit of having uh, a board of, of 26, 27 others from across Canada, including the, the immediate past president of, of the Canada-Ukraine Foundation, who himself is leading, Viktor Hetmanchuk, is leading the joint committee between the Ukrainian-Canadian Congress and the Canada-Ukraine Foundation on this. And Viktor has decades of experience uh, with with programming and projects uh, in Ukraine. So um, it's everyone is very stretched right now in terms of their, their bandwidth. And, uh, you know, we're, we're really grateful to all of the donors who are supporting us. And we, we, uh, we take the, the donors, um, steward, stewardship of donors money very, very, is very important to us. And it's a, it's a lean foundation. It's a grassroots foundation, but we're trying to find ways to get help to the ground, to the people who need it. And I, and I commend, um, Ihor and, uh, and, and his, uh, organization for all the great work they're doing. Um, really any, any bona fide foundation or charity in Canada that, that is, uh, um, supporting, uh, Ukrainians in whatever way they can is very much appreciated. I was thrilled to hear earlier today that the Red Cross had made their 10 million already. And so they've got the government match and that's exciting. Um, and, and so we want to thank the government of Canada for their support in, in that, uh, arena. And all of the provinces who have come to the table to support the uh, UCC and Canada Ukraine Foundation's uh, appeal from Alberta, Saskatchewan, Manitoba, Ontario, and Nova Scotia to date. So five of five of the provinces um, have have come to the table to to support us. We heard from charities that that were uh, less than thrilled with the match going to the Red Cross. That's a whole other issue. Ehor, uh, I have heard from people inside the community that uh, some kind of foreign legion is being set up, that there are all kinds of people volunteering to go back and fight. Well, that's correct. I mean, we're not uh, directly involved with this. This is what you're discussing is uh, essentially the president of Ukraine um, a couple of days ago made an announcement uh, that uh, he and the government of Ukraine and people of Ukraine are calling about anybody internationally who is willing to go and fight in Ukraine. And this is being asked because you have to realize that Ukraine is fighting against the essentially entire Russian military might. The population of Russia is three and a half times size of Ukraine. The Russian military is uh, tremendously more, um, you know, stronger equipped. I mean, they inherited a huge military-industrial complex after the collapse of the Soviet Union. They've been participating in wars in Syria, in Georgia, in the Caucasus, all over the world. They're well-trained, they're well-equipped, and Ukraine being a peaceful country, although in the state of war uh, with Russia over the past uh, eight years is still really, uh, you know, outnumbered and, you know, and fighting bravely, but is but is struggling uh, to stop these Russian aggressions. Uh, as we all know also, NATO, unfortunately, is not willing to fight in Ukraine or any other Western military, and therefore Ukraine is left alone to, uh, to, to fight the Russian military might. And therefore, the president of Ukraine and the government of Ukraine call anybody who is willing to travel to Ukraine and fight. And uh, from what I understand, you know, there has already been a number of volunteers from Canada, U.S., 
Uh, it's my understanding. I read a, uh, uh, I read the government uh, call. They're asking for everybody who is interested to call a uh, Ukrainian embassy uh, in Ottawa and to deal with the military attache and other staff members who will direct them how to travel in Ukraine and how to join the so-called International Legion on defending Ukraine, but also, frankly, defending the, the entire free world against Russian aggression. Uh, Betsy Kane, right now, I think the predictions are that this will create a refugee crisis, but in Europe, do you expect that to uh, s- spill over here? Absolutely, it will. Um, there are many people who either are in third countries already and are able to travel to Canada if they have existing visas. There may be people who have U.S. visas and will travel to the United States and make uh, refugee claims at the land border between Canada and the United States. There are people, students, uh, other people who are in Canada, visitors who may make a claim. And I think eventually... Um, you know, it's it's early days yet, but uh, we can expect Canada to have a more fulsome response to the situation. It's just um, early days, but I believe the government of Canada is looking at new measures to help uh, Ukrainian people in this um, unbelievable situation, which appears to be close to World War III. So um, the government has a history of helping uh, people in these type of circumstances and uh, with the ties between Canada and the Ukraine, I would expect that the government will develop something shortly. And Betsy, sorry, Libby, if I might just, sure. Betsy, you may be aware of this uh, already, but um, through the Ukrainian Canadian Congress, um, starting last night and running every night until Wednesday, there's a series of uh, yes. uh, free legal, legal information um, seminars on immigration and other legal support for Ukrainians. And that's on, I, I've sent that to the um, to your producers, Libby. There's a link to... Um, yeah, I saw it. Yeah, I sent, yeah, I sent it to Libby and, and, and yeah. so forth. And what's really amazing is that anyone can join these webinars. Um, they're offered by Ukrainian-Canadian immigration lawyers. And most of the information is in Ukrainian, so it's very helpful. But do keep in mind that, uh, you know, lawyers in Canada are not able to provide, in the, you know, legal advice on a case-by-case situation. But these are very valuable um, tools that... Uh, Canadian-Ukrainian lawyers are offering pro bono. And there are other lawyers groups as well that will be looking to step in as well. It's just that this particular group acted so rapidly in getting this together with the help of the UCC. Um, Another question. So what about the family reunification stream, which is another stream that is uh, backlogged? It is backlogged. And, um, you know, all we can say is that... um, the government has, uh, in the past, devoted resources to helping uh, situations, most recently with the Afghanistan situation. Um, the government will have to devote more human and financial resources to address uh, the Ukraine situation. And we're hoping that with the monies that have been allocated and the mandate of the current minister, that um, they will be able to, one, clear the backlog and devote uh, resources. Now, um, you know, these are all wishes. What happens on the ground is yet to be determined. Uh, it's early days, but it might be appropriate at this point to have Global Affairs Canada and other departments uh, take place in uh, helping the Ukrainian people so that it's not only on the shoulders of IRCC. Orest, uh, obviously your, your first concern is getting uh, humanitarian aid to people, but uh, are you thinking ahead to helping with resettlement or anything like that? Certainly. I think that, um, ag- again, the, um, there are a lot of uh, organizations uh, that, that are providing uh, help and, and collecting to help in various parts. Um, we have, you know, we can only do what, what, what's within our, our capacity. And, um, you know, this appeal has, uh, enabled us to get to the, the to the, uh, level of funds that we need to address this, uh, this phase one, uh, capacity, which is food and medicine packets. And, and, and we're looking at shelter, uh, and hopefully, um, you know, the, the humanitarian crisis is not exacerbated any further. Uh, but, you know, based on, on the actions and what we're seeing, we have no reason to, to believe that it's going to stop. Um, we will continue to uh, assess what those needs are. 
and we will work uh, with with the ministries uh, in the Ukrainian government to make sure that we are uh, aligned with what the needs are and that we understand what the needs on the ground are. And then we will find those gaps that need to be filled. Um, and, and we will find uh, bona fide partners on the ground uh, uh, who are able to deliver on uh, on those needs. And we will continue to do that and we will continue to adjust. I'm not going to use the P word of the pandemic pivot, but we will continue to adapt and assess and, uh, and ensure again, the stewardship of that money to make sure that the, the, that the, the, the donors uh, funds are going to help the people on the ground, whatever the need evolves to. And, and how will you be able to uh, show that just with a report or? Yeah. So, so twice, uh, twice a week, at least. So we've been, um, again, again, this is, we're, we're, this is, we're, we're still in the early days, right? So the appeal was announced, uh, several weeks ago. The, the initial uh, announcement of the, of the target being raised was made on Thursday, uh, last Thursday. Um, we, 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 we just posted an announcement with the UCC just after 9 a.m. Uh, this morning with an update on where we're at in terms of reaching the target and announcing that that first tranche would be sent. So twice a week, more or less on our website. Uh, unless there are major uh, announcements that come in between that. And you see, you'll see things coming from the Ukrainian-Canadian Congress on a more regular basis. But with regards to this appeal, the Canada-Ukraine Foundation, uh, Ukraine Humanitarian Appeal, you'll see those coming at least twice a week. And we're, we're asking also the providers to, to, you know, to, to not to detract from what they're delivering in terms of the aid, but we're asking them for photos and, and videos of the aid being delivered and loaded up and that sort of thing, because we know the donors want to see that too. Uh, Ihor, uh, so far, have you, you're, are you uh, finding that you're able to deliver what you need to deliver? Yes, absolutely. We have been successful, and primarily, I think, because, as I mentioned earlier, uh, we have been providing assistance to the Ukrainian forces, veterans, their families since 2014. So it was challenging in 2014. Uh, then we established the system. Now we are uh, adopting, as I said, because uh, there is fighting going right across Ukraine uh, in the key areas is more difficult. But we do have established organization, you know, established relationship with uh, our organizations, with the military, with people on the ground, and we are adapting by procuring. Uh, primarily, we just focusing on delivering. Uh, uh, non-lethal military aid. So first aid kits for the military, uh, helmets, uh, body armor, night vision, goggles, and so on. Anything that will uh, help Ukrainian uh, soldiers to fight and to preserve life and to give them advantage on the battlefields. Clearly, we are not in position to provide weapons and ammunitions, but any non-lethal support we are providing. And we are doing this by uh, primarily purchasing this in Western Europe, in, in Poland, and we have uh, delivery routes from there into the Ukraine and and then our people are meeting this um, at the Ukrainian-Polish border, and they have a network of deliveries uh, across uh, across Ukraine. And clearly, those people are also risking their lives because there is battle going all over Ukraine. But so far, we have been fairly successful uh, delivering uh, this non-lethal military aid to uh, key battlefields across Ukraine. Don't they need that stuff yesterday? Well, of course, and we have been delivering this all along over the past eight years. But if if you look at it now, for example, Ukrainian Ukrainian military is just increasing uh, by an hour by the hour. General mobilizations was called uh, in Ukraine, so you have literally hundreds of thousands of Ukrainian taking arms. And unlike professional Ukrainian army or National Guard, all those volunteers and reservists who are being called up, they're going to the front lines without uh, bulletproof vests, most without helmets. And, you know, they need any support uh, they can. Frankly, nobody expected that, you know, uh, Vladimir Putin and his madman in the Kremlin would unleash the World War II type of scenario, warfare, all-out war. And therefore, you know, nobody thought it would be requirements for mobilization of hundreds of thousands, if not a million of people. And therefore, resources are short, and we're trying to close this gap as much as we can. Orst, uh, there are a lot of different things coming out. It's very difficult to make sure which uh, what information is correct, what is disinformation. Uh, do you have a view of that? Uh, I mean, what I'm trying what I'm trying to do is keep our eye on the ball here. And although it, it, this is a, it's a very emotional um, time for us. And, and one wants to, you know, it's easy to get buried and go down a rabbit hole on Twitter or click on links and that sort of thing. 
Um, all we can do is uh, is focus on what what how we're able to help here, uh, and and specifically. So any energy that that I'm giving to this, it's uh, it's just about raising money for the for for the humanitarian aid. Um, I'm not going to speak on the veracity of various reports. We've all seen um, how how you know the media ha- can potentially be manipulated, but. Um, uh, I think that all, it's all we can do is to keep our eye on the ball of what we're doing and how we can help here, uh, and uh, with hopes that um, that uh, the the invading forces will uh, will retreat and uh, Ukraine is uh, able to continue along its trajectory uh, as a free and sovereign, independent nation, and the people can take the country where they were taking it uh, before before this um, this invasion and this in, uh, continued incursion. Uh, onto a free and sovereign neighbor um, uh, blew up last week. Uh, Betsy Kane, is is there anything uh, from your end to do but wait for the government to come out with new programs or uh, regulations or whatnot? Well, I think um, one of the things I was on the um, on one of the webinars last night by the Ukrainian lawyers, and there was already employers in Canada offering jobs, and as a interim measure. Um, I would encourage any employers who are interested in hiring uh, the skilled workers or the talent that comes out of the Ukraine um, to make efforts to try to bring these people out through work permits. There are clear and very available avenues to bring people out of out of out of where they currently are through work permits. Be obviously they'd have to be processed out of the Ukraine. Um, but um, employers who want to hire these people have avenues to do so. Canada is prioritizing uh, workers in a number of sectors, um, and this is an avenue which employers can do something immediately and take steps to bring uh, skilled workers. There's other organizations such as Talent Lift that matches people, uh, people who are in refugee-like circumstances to um to match them with employers. And if people want to look at this one uh, program that IRCC has developed, it's called the Economic Mobility Pathway as well. So there are ways to start the process today with uh, Canadian companies who um, need talent and feel that, you know, they can harness this pool of talent that that needs uh, settlement. So this is a, a way that we can act today before the government um takes further steps to help the Ukrainian people. Okay, we're just about out of time. Oris, last 20 seconds to you. Uh, so so Libby and uh, Betsy and Ihor, it was a pleasure uh, spending a couple of minutes with you talking about this important support and this this appeal uh, to help U- Ukraine and the, and the people. I'll just uh, make an appeal to the listeners to, uh, to um, visit cufoundation.ca. It's the Canada-Ukraine Foundation, and consider supporting this appeal. Thank you so much for your time. Okay, thank you, all thank of you. Uh, Ihor Kozak, Betsy Kane, and Oris Sklarenko, uh, excuse me. And uh, as I said at the beginning, there are quite a number of organizations who are fundraising. Check them all out. Check out whether you get a tax receipt. Check it all out, and um, we are all hoping for the best for this terrible situation in Ukraine. And that is all the time we have for today. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.